Thank you for listening to this audio recording from the pastoral team at Church of the Redeemer, an Anglican church in Greensboro, North Carolina. If you'd like to know more about Church of the Redeemer, its ministry, or its mission, then visit us online at RedeemerGSO.org. Good morning. It's a joy to be preaching the Word of God on this beautiful spring day. I know it's technically still winter, but in my opinion, spring starts when the crocuses start blooming, and they have started blooming. And it's a particularly um, wonderful joy to preach while quite pregnant. Thankfully, these robes are quite roomy. And we are just so excited to raise this child with y'all, our church family. I'm sure this is the first of many sermons that we'll hear from both its father and I. Let's pray together. Lord, may we enter your rest through obedience to your commandments. May you send your Holy Spirit to us this morning and fill our senses with your presence. In Jesus' name, amen. My heart is so full after a day of worship and learning yesterday in our greenhouse at the Jubilee Conference hosted by our college ministry. We had a bunch of our high schoolers and our fellows and our college students and young adults all come out to revel in God's big picture for his world, from creation to the fall to redemption to new creation. The Holy Spirit was powerfully present among us. The conference is called Jubilee to remind us what we are all heading toward as Christians, the ultimate Sabbath rest of a restored new creation where we will dwell eternally with God. Jubilee in the Old Testament happens after every 49th year, seven years times seven, and is the ultimate Sabbath year when all debts are forgiven, captives are released, land is redistributed, and the land itself gets a deserved rest from being cultivated. And in Christian tradition, we have this vision of how when Jesus returns, it will be the ultimate Jubilee. All wrongs and sorrows and inequalities will be set right, and we can truly rest with God, the ultimate Sabbath. Today, we are going to be focusing on this fourth commandment to keep the Sabbath, arguably the hardest commandment of the ten. The commandment to keep the seventh day holy. It tends to be one we think of as an optional lowercase c commandment, unlike a capital C commandment like thou shalt not murder. But in scripture, Sabbath is anything but optional or unimportant. It actually gets the longest paragraph in the Ten Commandments, Exodus 20, which we read this morning, because it was considered one of the most critical commandments that helps you keep all the other commandments. Because Christians have forgotten to practice Sabbath well often, or have kept it in a legalistic or strident way, we need a radical reintroduction to what Sabbath actually is and how essential it is to the good news of Jesus Christ. Sabbath is such good news. Well, all the visual learners will be happy this morning because I'm going to show you a wonderful video by the Bible Project introducing us to this concept of seventh-day rest and how it weaves the whole narrative of the Bible together. Let's watch it. The number seven is a big deal in the Bible. Yeah, in biblical Hebrew, the word seven is connected to the idea of fullness or completeness. And that's something we all long for, but don't often experience. Instead, we find ourselves working endlessly, fighting back chaos with no real rest. Yes. Now keep all that in mind as we turn to Genesis 1 and 
Bible. It begins with darkness and disorder, but then God speaks to bring about the course of six days. Each day is marked with the phrase, there was evening and there was morning. But on the seventh day, something special happens. God stops and rests. Right. Creation is brought to its completion on the seventh day. And that phrase, there was evening and there was morning, it doesn't appear on day seven. It's like a day with no end. On the seventh day, God's presence fills his creation. The land provides for all of God's creatures, including humans, who are appointed to rule the world with God forever. Kings and queens of the seventh day rest. I can get into that. But the humans are deceived by a dark power, and they forfeit that rest. They're exiled into the wilderness, where they have to work as slaves to the land. Until they die and return to the dust from which they came. But God wants to restore humanity back to that seventh-day rest. So he chooses to give the family of Israel that experience of ultimate rest so they can share it with others. But how? They're in Egypt, slaves to an oppressive empire who's grinding them into the dust. So God confronts Egypt and he liberates the Israelites, taking them through the darkness and chaos on the way to the promised land. Now, while they're on their way, they find themselves in the wilderness. It's easy to get lost. Life is a struggle. They're not in the land of rest yet. But while they're on the way, God invites them in the wilderness to start living as if they're in the promised land. But how do you practice the future rest in the wilderness? Well, God tells them that every seventh day they are to stop their work, or in Hebrew, to Shabbat, so that they can rest and enjoy God's good world. So take a whole day to live as if the ultimate rest has already come. Yeah, this is the Sabbath, celebrated every week on the seventh day. But there's more. The Sabbath is just one of seven festivals that Israel practiced every year, each one anticipating that seventh day rest. That is a lot of sevens. And there's even more. Every seven years, the Israelites were to liberate slaves, forgive debts, and let the land rest for a whole year. And then... Every seven times seven years was the ultimate seventh day rest, called the year of Jubilee. If anyone had lost their land or gone into debt, all was forgiven, everything restored. Wow, so the Sabbath, these feasts, the year of Jubilee, it's all pointing towards the hope of future rest. Right. Now, when the Israelites went into the land, they forgot their God, and so they forfeited their chance for rest in the promised land. They're exiled and enslaved again by an oppressive nation, led back into a world of chaos and disorder. But Israel's prophets said that their exile would end one day and that the ultimate jubilee of freedom and rest would come, but generations go by and they're still waiting. It's at this dark point in the story that Jesus appears and he launches his public mission on a Sabbath day. Yeah, he read aloud from the scroll of Isaiah, saying that it was time for all captives and slaves to be released because this was the year of the Lord's favor. What did he mean, this is the year of the Lord's favor? He was talking about the ultimate jubilee. Also, Jesus is claiming that seventh-day rest would come through him. Right. He said that he was the Lord of the Sabbath, and he confronted disorder and darkness in all of its forms, liberating people from sickness, sin, even from death itself. Yet, Jesus was killed, so even his work was undone. Well, it seemed that way. But notice, Jesus timed his death to take place at the end of the week. His body rested in a tomb during the Sabbath, and on the eighth day, he rose from the dead. Oh, wait, the eighth day? You mean the first day of a new week? Exactly. Jesus' resurrection was like the first day of a new creation, where God's light and life 
broke into the darkness. So because of the resurrection, we have hope in God's promise of future rest. But we're not there yet. It's like we're still in the wilderness where we experience struggle and pain. But as we journey towards that ultimate seventh day, Jesus invites us to experience a taste of real rest now by following him, or in his words, come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Isn't that amazing to see how it all connects from Genesis to Revelation? Sabbath is so much more than a boring prescription to put up your feet once a week. Sabbath is a practice that teaches humans how to live into their identity as being made in the image of God, the creator who fosters incredible life for six days and then takes the seventh day to rest from his work and to be fully content in what has been created. Ultimately, the Sabbath commandment is about five things. One, intimacy with God. Number two, resistance against the powers and principalities of evil. Number three, contentment in and with God's creation. Number four, forming a community in holiness. And number five, giving a taste of the eternal rest to come after the resurrection. So first, how does the Sabbath help us form a more intimate relationship with God? Well, I want you to close your eyes and picture a memory of when you have felt most deeply at rest and closest to God. Where were you? What surrounded you? Think of the scenery, the smell, the sounds, the feel of the air. What were you doing that helped you feel that deep, holy rest? Sit in that memory for a moment. Throughout scripture, God talks about Sabbath rest, or his rest, as he calls it, as a gift that he gives us, the sweetest of gifts. Have you felt that sweetness, even for just a fleeting second, of what it's like to be at rest and in his presence? Often our memories are in childhood, when it is easiest to enter God's rest. I love this quote from Abraham Heschel, a Jewish rabbi famous for his writings on Sabbath. The Sabbath is the presence of God in the world, open to the soul of man. The Sabbath is the presence of God in the world, open to the soul of man. Sabbath rest is a training tool to really see God present in his creation, to feel him in the wind, to see the beauty he creates daily, to feel his love surrounding us. How often in the frantic busyness of our life, Do we ignore this tangible presence of the Holy Spirit? Sabbath invites us to stop, to take our eyes off our obsessions and preoccupations, to put down our screens and to look around us. Sabbath is like God saying, look me in the eyes. Let's have some time together today. Imagine if you never spent any focused quality time with your best friend or your spouse or your child or your parent. What would the relationship be like? non-existent, tense probably. Sabbath is like a rejuvenating play date with God where we nurture our relationship with him. 
This connects closely to our second tenet. Sabbath helps us resist the powers and principalities of evil and brokenness in our world. Okay, I want you to close your eyes again, but this time I want you to think of when you felt the least at rest, the most discontent. What does this restlessness feel like? Where were you? What were your surroundings like? What were you obsessing about? Sit in that memory for a moment. This is unfortunately way more common for most of us than the memory of rest. Everything in our world pushes us to be restless, dissatisfied. St. Augustine's famous line that Ben read us this morning is that we are restless until we rest in God. Restlessness is the default state of fallen humanity. We are programmed by the fallen world to want more and more and more without ever being satisfied. Think of how much money the elite of the world make from us never being satisfied. We are literally bombarded every minute with advertisements to keep us wanting the next thing, the next experience. We are told that we aren't worth anything until we've achieved the next mile mark of success. Work harder, buy more. That's our culture in a nutshell. As we saw in the video, Pharaoh and Babylon and the empires that hold Israel in bondage are the epitome of this evil in our world. Egypt's pharaoh is never content. The wealth of his empire must always grow. Pyramids must be built bigger and taller and more majestic. More food must be grown and stored. And all of this was on the backs of the poor. The Israelites were enslaved because pharaoh needed free labor to make bricks for his buildings. Over and over again, he tells Moses he can't let his people free because they have to keep working keep satisfying his unending thirst for growth and expansion. He rages at Moses in Exodus 5. Why are you taking the people away from their work? Get to your labors. You shall not lessen your daily number of bricks. Some good all of those bricks did him when he was drowned by God at the bottom of the Red Sea. Pharaoh sunk to the bottom as if all of those bricks he brutally forced others to make for him were tied to his feet. It's out of this Egyptian mentality and bondage that God delivers his people into the desert, but he knows that it's going to take time to reprogram them from Egypt's economy into God's economy. He teaches them how to Sabbath in the desert before they even get to the promised land because he wants them to resist this idea that their identity is all about working and accumulating. He tells them to take one day a week and not even gather manna and quail their only food in the desert, and that he will provide double for them on the sixth day so that they can rest. If they try to gather it on the seventh day, it will rot before they eat it, he vows. Just like the Israelites, God's Sabbath rest is an act of reprogramming our bodies and souls out of our Egypt economy and into God's economy. It is a weekly reminder that we are not slaves to the rulers of our world. We are free children of a loving father who is the source of all of our food, our shelter, our happiness. One day a week, 
we tell God and ourselves, I am like a sparrow kept by your hand. I will not work because I do not worship my work. I will not shop online because I am not what I own. I will spend the day with you, God, because without you, I would die. Pharaoh does not give me life. Satan and his minions, you give me life, God. The real Amazon, the rainforest you created, gives me life. Through that massive forest, you fill every human lung on this planet with oxygen. You give me life through your beautiful creation. This brings us to number three. Sabbath teaches us to be content in and with God's creation. More even than Egypt, our globalized industrial culture has turned the whole of creation into a mine for bricks. Every good gift of God has been turned into a commodity. We are devouring creation so quickly, so voraciously, like demonic, hungry, hungry hippos, that almost every ecosystem that God spent billions of years creating and fine-tuning is on the verge of collapse. Our rainforests, our oceans, our savannas, the entirety of our stable climate. Can you imagine how deeply this breaks God's heart? Even though he can recreate it all in a second, to watch the creatures he created in his image wreak so much destruction with so little gratitude or reverence for the majesty of his work. Scientists are warning us that in the next century, we might see the unimaginable collapse of all the life we take for granted. Because of our rampant use of chemicals, the destruction of habitats and climate change, the total mass of insects on earth is decreasing 3% a year. If it continues on this trend, there will be no more insects on earth by the time this baby in my womb turns 98 years old. Insects are the foundation of food for the whole terrestrial food chain. If they go, everything above them goes. Birds, mammals, everything. It's just one omen of the many of the ecological catastrophe of our own making. Sabbath says, stop, just stop. Give the land a rest, stop devouring, please stop. God has made creation so it can easily provide for all of us. If we would live as he would have us live, simply in contentment with few possessions, growing food and producing goods in a way that works with ecosystems and not against them. God warns his people in the Torah that if they do not give the land a rest every seven years, it will rebel against them and they will be kicked off the land. In Hosea chapter four, God tells his people that they did not keep his commandments and honor him in the promised land. Quote, because of your sin, the land dries up and all who live in it waste away. The beasts of the field, the birds in the sky, and the fish in the sea are swept away. This passage just haunts me. The only way we can stop this from happening, the only way we really preserve creation, is if we are in relationship with it and with its creator. Sabbathing once a week and getting out into creation, to a hiking path or a lake, or sitting in our front yard and watching birds, all of this builds relationship and love. We only cherish what we have relationship with. If someone told us puppies would be extinct in 100 years, something tells me we'd get our butts in gear because we have relationship with them. In the Van Wyck family, arguably maybe too close a relationship with them. And in God's amazing mercy and grace, when we go out and spend the day with him in creation, 
we don't just receive his fury at we are, what we are doing to creation. We receive his forgiveness and love. He wants us to love him and what he has made. He has hope in our redemption through Jesus. He knows that we can and will be restored. He knows that all of creation can and will be restored. He wants us to be people that live into this restoration now, every week, every day. Consider the sparrows, Jesus tells us. Consider the lilies. They do not fret or toil, and yet God feeds and clothes them. Rest in me, God says, and I will show you how abundant creation can be if you stop killing it. Communion, which we practice every Sabbath, is the ultimate vision of this. Eucharist means thanksgiving. On the altar, we offer up in gratitude the gifts of creation. Other people pay attention. How do they have the self-discipline to unplug like that, they ask? What allows them to detach from the loud and urgent demands of the world like that? The power of God, we answer. And notice in Exodus 20, the commandment for Sabbath is for the whole community, for the family, for servants, for working animals, for immigrants, it lists. God wants every creature and every human to be able to Sabbath, not just the rich. I know some who grew up super Baptist are a bit salty about how they weren't allowed to go to restaurants or movie theaters on the Sabbath day. But I think there's actually wisdom in this. If I Sabbath, but expect Target employees and restaurant workers and gas station attendants to work so that I can have my conveniences, when do they Sabbath? Oh, they'll Sabbath another day, we say. But for most of the working poor, there is no Sabbath. Wages are so low that working every day is often a necessity. Old Sabbath laws in the United States helped to ensure that most could rest once a week. Granted, there was no rest for the enslaved or domestic workers. We have fallen far short in our history. But the old ways at least pointed to the truth that we Sabbath together or we often don't Sabbath at all. On Friday night around 7.30 p.m., Judson went to Walmart to get some things for Jubilee and was behind a young, low-income woman in line with her two kids who were hungry and screaming. The woman looked very tired, he told me later. She had probably just gotten off of work and was trying to get some food for dinner. 
Relentless exhaustion is the result of a culture that does not know how to stop. And the burden of that falls most acutely on the poor. Christians who are called by our Lord to serve the poor need to be advocates and models of a totally different way of being in the world, a totally different economy. I know it's daunting to think of how to counter the entrenched society that surrounds us. But in the power of Jesus, Christians have transformed whole societies before. They transformed the Roman Empire. It starts with living differently in small communities and watching that different way of life contagiously catch on. It also looks like advocating for living wages and paid time off. When non-believers look at us, they should think, these guys are really well rested and they are advocating for my rest. Who are these people? What makes them the way they are? Do you think most believers, non-believers say that about American Christians right now? We must repent for the ways that we have sinned against God, against ourselves, and against our neighbors. In all the ways that Sabbath teaches us to stop and divest from our desires, it is a year-round Lenten practice. It is a practice of self-denial for the sake of deep self-fulfillment. But it is also simultaneously a practice of resurrection, as the Bible Project video showed us. It's an Easter practice, too. Our fifth point is that the Sabbath helps us get a taste of the eternal rest that is coming in Jesus. Every Sabbath, we ask God to give us a taste of the full joy that awaits us in new creation, when every tear will be dried and the earth will be restored. We have no idea of the full glory that awaits us when we are resurrected to new life. But on the Sabbath day, if we practice it well, we can catch a whiff of that fragrant reality. We experience it here together when we worship on God, when we worship God on Sunday morning. And throughout, then throughout whatever day we're able to dedicate is the Sabbath day. For Judson and I, that's Mondays because we work as church staff on Sundays. Maybe for the Hewitts, they catch a whiff of, on their sailboat as a family. Maybe for the Munyakazis, they experience it while praising God through dancing in our sanctuary in the afternoon at the Swahili service. Maybe for the Walls or for the Lewises, it's in their awesome backyard gardens. Maybe for the Webbers, it's playing with their rabbits and chickens. Maybe for your family, it's playing music together or picnicking or hammocking the park. If you are hearing this and you long to Sabbath, but you have no idea how to, where to get started, I really encourage you to find a Sabbath guide, either one of our staff or another believer who Sabbaths really well. When we are stuck in go mode, it's really hard to get our bodies to change modes once a week. It takes time and patience and practice, and it feels like streaming, swimming upstream. But take heart. Sabbath is a jewel well worth pursuing. It is a commandment that yields abundant life, not only for us, but for all God created. Ask Jesus to help, help you enter his rest, to be your ultimate Sabbath guide. He longs to give it to you. I have a few book recommendations. Um, and I got this yesterday from Jubilee. Every segment, they would do different book recommendations. Um, one is this new book called The Ruthless Elimination of Hurry by John Mark Comer, who's a pastor out in Oregon. And it's a, a remarkable book that really speaks to the particularities of being a Christian in the 21st century and Sabbath in the 21st century. Another is a book by Walter Brueggemann called Sabbath as Resistance, Saying No to the Culture of Now. 
Um, and that's an incredible book about the Sabbath economy. Um, and then the last is called Living the Sabbath, Discovering the Rhythms of Rest and Delight by Norman Wersa. And that's really sort of a deep dive into the biblical vision of the relationship between Sabbath and God's creation. And I'll put all of those, we'll put all of those on our website under the sermon for today. And most importantly, I'd like to invite you to something. So we are passionate about helping all of our congregation, including ourselves as clergy and staff, Sabbath well. So one of the things that we are starting this year is that on every other month, um, the alternating month of Umaganda, we're going to host a Saturday communal Sabbath day where we play and learn together about what it looks like to Sabbath, um, where we take quiet time of contemplation and we eat a really good meal together um, and we eat from our land and we take time to hammock in the greenhouse. And we're gonna have this kind of practice evolve, but it will hopefully happen um, usually the first Saturday of every other month. But our first one is on March 20th. And you can sign up um, on our website if you'd like to register. And we're really hoping that the Lord uses us and uses this, um, this Sabbath day practice to really form us um, out of Egypt economy and into God's economy.